0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, 1 Peter should be near the end of the New Testament, near the end of the Bible. It should be on the pew Bible that you have underneath the seat in front of you, somewhere around page 1014. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word, and I'm going to encourage you to keep that open the whole time. And in particular, I need you to also turn to one other place that you'll need later in the service. Go ahead, and if you have your program, stick it in Exodus 24, which is on the other end of the Bible. So you go to the beginning of the Bible, stick in your program, you go back to the other end of the Bible, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you. Just feel free to, to take that, we'd love for you to have a Bible that you can read and understand as you learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you have any questions about that, we'd love to speak with you after the service. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask for your help now as we turn our attention to your word and that you would protect us from ever looking in for in the creature what can only be found in the creator, hope. We pray, Father, that today, as we turn our attention to this book of the Bible, that you would increase our hope in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen us, that we might live in hope of the future day. Father, we pray that for those who are here overhearing this message of hope, that today you would do the good work of opening their ears to hear the truth of the gospel, opening their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and causing them to be born again by the Spirit of Christ to place their faith in the hope of the gospel. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Hope can be defined as a feeling of expectation or a desire for a certain outcome. And in the 1994 film Shawshank Redemption, hope is portrayed by Andy as, quote, a good thing, maybe the best of things, a thing that never dies. Whereas Red, Andy's fellow inmate, believes hope is a dangerous thing. Hope, he says, can drive a man insane. Two men from completely different backgrounds, who came to completely different conclusions. One was an honest man who, while in prison, became a crook. The other is the only guilty man in Shawshank. In Andy's mind, hope creates belief, and belief creates motivation, and ultimately, motivation creates a call to action. Only after a month after he arrived at Shawshank, he formed his goal and worked toward it, hopefully, with only a small rock hammer. For Red, however... Hope was a fear that he believed might cause disappointment and kill him from the inside, especially after his petition for release was rejected. So he protected himself, he thought, by suppressing hope. Is this your approach to life? Suppressing hope? You can't be disappointed if you hope for nothing, right? Or perhaps you're one of the people here today who would say, Pastor, some of us are hopeful people while the rest of us are realists. If that's your perspective, let me ask you. How's that working out for you? Do you feel that you are better able to cope with life? In this letter that begins with a paradox, we find hope as exiles to live in the world when we are not of the world, even though we look like and speak like and dress like everyone else. Far from being the kind of ambiguous term that people use as inspiration to build them up, or others identify and define as the expectation which finally broke them down, Peter says this hope cannot be taken away from us because it resides in heaven. Four questions will help frame our introduction to 1 Peter and our study of the first two verses this morning. First, who wrote it? Look with me again at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Who wrote the letter is clear enough. The letter itself claims to be written by Peter, and that claim should be accepted unless there is enough evidence to the contrary, and there isn't. But what do we know about this Peter? Well, we know that his name was given to him by Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Rock. Names are so important. A name that was given to him by Jesus, even though he did not always live in light of that name. In fact, eventually, over the course of his life, he showed that he was not rock solid in his faith at all, and it was only after Jesus restored him that he finally labored as somebody who was rock solid in the faith, which we also know that he was, verse one, an apostle. Which could simply mean that he is a messenger. But in the verses immediately preceding the one that we just read from in Mark's gospel, we learn this Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You can only be an apostle if you have seen Jesus face to face. And I've been commissioned by Jesus personally, which is why there are so few apostles mentioned in scripture and there are no such thing as modern day apostles. To be one of Jesus' apostles was to have special access so that they might be with him. And to have a particular task, preaching, and a unique authority over demons But just in case we somehow get the idea that there was something remarkable about Peter that made him somehow intrinsically worthy of all of this authority, he reminds us that he's an apostle, verse 1, of Jesus Christ, which tells us something else about him. The authority that Peter had was a delegated authority. What Peter writes in this letter is not authoritative because his personal opinions are better than your personal opinions, or his personal opinions are more informed than your personal opinions, though both of those things might be true. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was commissioned by Jesus Christ, and so writes God's word on behalf of Jesus Christ to the churches. In his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, we find this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The commands of the Lord and Savior come to us through the apostles. And that means that you cannot pick and choose which parts of this letter that you do like or do not like or that you do want to apply or do not want to apply to your lives because these are not merely Peter's words. These are God's words to us. Friends, let me ask you. When you finally get around to reading the Bible and find sections of Scripture that speak to areas of your life that you somehow thought were off limits, what is your first reaction? To minimize its teaching? Well, that's really extreme. Or to explain it away? Well, it certainly can't mean that. It's an ancient book for ancient people, and now we're modern people in a modern time. It can't mean that anymore. Things are different. Times are different. People are different. Culture is different. Or do you apply it to your lives? with repentance and faith. Believers in the room, when you're reading the Bible, are you just taking in information and glazing over the words? Or are you actually reading them as the words of God to you that they might shape the way that you live in the world? Peter teaches us in his second letter that we can have a greater confidence in what he has written to us as both true and authoritative than in the most amazing of religious experiences. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 Let me ask you, have you ever trusted in religious experience more than the word of God? I cannot tell you how many times I hear people quoting religious experience rather than quoting the Bible. Do you have greater confidence in current or past religious experiences than you do in the word of God? If you did not feel it, if you did not experience it, If you were not there for it, it was not real. Why do you think this? Peter opens his letter by telling us that Jesus Christ designated him as an authoritative messenger as an authoritative interpreter of the gospel. And that means that this letter does not simply represent good advice, but a binding apostolic word for the church, the church of the first century and the church of the 21st century. An apostolic word written down by verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in Rome in the early 60s, probably around 62 or 63 AD, before the beginning of persecution from Nero. Who wrote it? Peter wrote it. Second, Who was it written to? Verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's letter is written for Christians dispersed all throughout Asia Minor in regions now known to us as modern-day Turkey. To those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. An area of about 300,000 miles in total. But what is the reason for the order in which Peter tells us about these regions? Efficiency beginning in Pontus, the carrier of Peter's letter would have traveled in a circle, going to the churches designated in each of these areas successively from Pontus to Galatia, from Galatia to Cappadocia, from Cappadocia to Asia, and from Asia finally to Bithynia, probably to get on a boat to go somewhere else. But do we know anything else about the Christians in these areas? We do, verse 1 to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter addresses his letter to the elect, to people have, who have been chosen by God. And in so doing, Peter connects their story to the story of the people of God across the Bible, a story that we read about earlier in the service from Deuteronomy chapter seven. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has Brothers and sisters, when we read the Bible, one of the things that we see across both Testaments is that God has always been electing people. He chose Noah out of all of the people on the earth. He chose Abraham and not the rest of the people in Ur. He chose Israel and not the other nations. He chose David and not his brothers. And he has chosen people to be a part of his church today and not everyone else. Peter tells us, that these people are the elect chosen people. And he connects their story in the present to the story of the people of God in the past, helping us to see that the people that he is writing to are the Israel of God, forecasting for us the theme of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where the church is called a chosen race, made up of both Jews and the audience of verse Peter, Gentiles. Formerly, they had been a people who lived, chapter 1, verse 14, in ignorance. But now they have been, chapter 1, verse 18, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. That's not the type of language that Peter would use if he was writing to Jews. Previously, chapter 4, verse 3, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. But now, chapter 4, verse 4, they do not join other Gentiles in the same flood of debauchery. Teaching us, brothers and sisters... If nothing has changed about our lives after we have professed faith in Christ, then perhaps nothing has changed about our lives at all. Let me ask you, are you resisting the sinful practices that you are encountering in your life? And what does that look like in 1 Peter? One of the ways, one of the dominant ways that looks like in 1 Peter is submission. Citizens are to submit to the government. Slaves are to submit to their master's. Wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives and respect them because in so doing, they model submission to the Lord. Submission and suffering well. And what does that look like in 1 Peter? Not paying back evil for evil, not retaliating when wrong has been done to us, but blessing other people so that they might inherit the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, Are you retaliating against other people? And are you modeling submission in your life? Everybody, including the pastor, has to submit to appropriate authorities in their life. Nobody is free from submission. The Bible tells us that the way that we show that we are a part of the people of God is by submission and authority. These new life practices are not the means of their salvation but they flow out of the mercy that God has shown them in Christ, and we see that in the very structure of Peter's letter. If you just look there in your Bible, you see these opening verses in verses one through two, and then if you look in chapter one, verse three, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the great mercy he, his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, beside chapter one, verse three, I want you to write chapter two, verse 10, and then I want you to look over at chapter two, verse 10. And notice how he marks off the section. He begins with mercy, and then he ends the section with mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. He begins with mercy in this section. He ends with mercy in this section. And as he reminds us of the great mercy that we have been recipients of, then he begins to give us positive commands in the letter, which is why in chapter two, verse 11, he changes and he doesn't say, blessed be God. He addresses them directly and he says, in verse 11 of chapter two, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, the new people of God, and then he ends this exhortation with doxology. If you like to write in your Bible beside chapter two, verse 11, I want you to write chapter four, verse 11, and then look over there. Notice how he ends in praise. He says, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Before addressing us again, chapter four, verse 12, as beloved, And then if you'd like to write in your Bible, beside chapter 4, verse 12, write chapter 5, verse 11. And then once again, ending in doxology. Chapter 5, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen, before closing his letter. Now, why does he begin with this call to mercy and then address us as beloved and then end with doxology twice? because he's showing us that our response to this teaching is an act of worship. When we respond in repentance, when we respond in faith, when we respond to it rightly, and when we do not respond to it, and be assured, everybody in this room is always responding to the message. When we respond in faith, we are responding in worship. And when we respond with hardness, we are resisting God. He exhorts them to be like this because the elect people to whom Peter is writing to are also, verse 1, exiles, sojourners and strangers. A theme that we see throughout 1 Peter, God's people are sojourners and strangers, exiles on earth. Chapter 1, verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Chapter five, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, a reference to Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Which is actually why we think that Mark is the one who's listening to Peter when he's writing his gospel. Peter addresses his letter to exiles, to the wandering people of God. And once again, what does he do at the very beginning of his letter? He connects their present day story with the story of the people of God in the past, reminding us of those who have gone before us, the people who are chosen yet wandering. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years just like Abraham these people are exiles while on earth and just like Israel they are the wandering people of God 1st chronicles chapter 16 verse 14 he is the lord our god his judgments are in all the earth Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Believers are exiles, not because they're displaced from their homeland. Many people in the Greco-Roman world would have been displaced from the land of their birth. Believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world where their faith is off-putting and strange. And God's election is the reason for their exile. They are sojourners because they have been elected by God, because they are citizens of heaven, not of earth. So why do we cling to earth so tightly? Some of you in this room have been pining after earthly things more than heavenly things, and you have been more frustrated by earthly things than the pursuit of heavenly things. And when we set our gaze on earthly things, Rather than heavenly things, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Which is exactly why Peter identifies them as, verse one of the dispersion, Though they are literally the people of God who by faith in Christ are joined with believing Jews and the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Israel are theirs, Peter is writing metaphorically because these Gentiles are not dispersed like Israel was dispersed in the literal sense. Their dispersion, like their exile, communicates that they are distinct from the world. And it tells us that the church is God's suffering people, having no place for rest in the world, which brings us to the reason that an apostle of Jesus Christ wrote to these elect exiles, to encourage them. To encourage them to hope as exiles while they endure suffering in the present evil age, which is why Peter so frequently refers to their suffering. Chapter one, verse six. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, you are not the first person who has had trials in your life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures while suffering unjustly. We are not the first people who have suffered unjustly in this life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 1 Peter 3, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good than uh, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter chapter five, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, throughout the letter, the theme that we see is that these believers... Though they are the elect people of God, chosen and precious, set apart for his promises, his special people whom he has set his electing gaze on, they suffer in this life. We see that these believers suffer because they no longer participated in their former manner of life. And the very people around them who they used to call friends, and the very people around them who are their family, and the very people around them who they work with, find that strange and weird and disruptive, so they slander them and they misrepresent them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which helps us see that their situation is not unlike our situation This is not mass persecution where everybody is walking down the street and if they identify as a believer, someone puts them to death on the side of the road. This is people who are now being alienated because they look weird in this life for trusting Christ. These are people who are maligned because their belief in Christ means that they do not participate in their former manner of life. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return, which tells us, when you're reviled, you're not to revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, which tells us, when we suffer, what should we not do? Threaten other people. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you know what it's like to be slandered by people around you? To be misrepresented by the people who are in your household, or you go to school with, or your colleagues? or the people that you meet. Do you know what it's like to be verbally oppressed by other people, where their words are like rocks that just dash upon your life? So did these believers. And Peter tells us, so did Jesus Christ, which is why he can empathize with your brokenness so effectively. Peter reminds these people that they are elect exiles, and in so doing, reminds them that they have status not because they're noble or worthy, not because everything in life is cheery or positive or working out for their advantage, but because God has bestowed his electing grace on them, and that should give them hope as exiles to persevere according to God's purposes in the world, in a world that hates them for their faith in Christ. Who wrote it? Peter did. Who is it written to? Elect exiles. Third, How did they get to be that way? Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. In verse 2, Peter tells us more about the elect exiles that he is writing to. Specifically, Peter begins to tell us, how is it that they actually came to be elect exiles? He tells us how they came to be elect exiles with three prepositional phrases that modify the adjective elect, having the effect of reproducing elect before each prepositional phrase. So you could read it like this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In his very first sermon in the book of Acts, Peter pairs foreknowledge with predestination. Acts chapter two, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 2 helps us see that Peter is telling us that God the Father did not simply just foresee who the elect would be. He ordained who the elect would be. And just as it was foreknown or ordained by God the Father for Jesus to come, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, before the foundation of the world, so also the election of these exiles to eternal life was foreknown or ordained by God the Father. And that, my friends, is a comforting thought when you are suffering for your faith and being maligned by other people around you. Why? Because the very same thing that you do, they would have done. What is the advantage to being one of God's elect people if this is how we're living in this world? What does it mean to be special to God if the people whom I love hate me? If I believe in God, why is there so much pain? And why am I suffering hardship after hardship? I've trusted Jesus Christ. I've believed in Jesus Christ. I've asked God to forgive me of my sins. I've tried to live a better life. I'm trying to be a good person. So, why is there pain? And why is there suffering? And why did I lose my job? And why does my spouse hate me? And why are my children rebelling? And why is it hard? And why don't I sleep well? And why don't I have enough? And why do I have sickness? And why this chronic illness? What advantage is there to being one of these elect people? Peter takes a step back and he reminds them that the fact that God has set his electing gaze on them from before the foundation of the world is to be a comfort to them in the midst of the pain because at the very moment when they are prone to think God has forgotten you, God has forsaken you, God does not notice you, God no longer cares about you. God is overlooking your life. God is passing you by and giving good things to other people. In that very moment, what you need to know is that his election is a surety for you that he is always for you and he is never against you. That God is always on your side. That he actually sees you when no one else sees you. Or perhaps for some of us, no one sees us as we really are. You see, some of us, we present a really good front on social media. And we don't do that bad here on Sunday mornings. But very few people see who we really are. But God knows who you are. And he knows everything about you. If you're hiding sin in this room, God knows it. And it will be judged. And if you're a believer in this room... And you feel like, I just can't share with anybody. Beloved, be encouraged. God sees. God is just. God will bring all hidden things into light. And he will bring a right account. And he will make all of those tears that were so unbearable comforted on the last day. Peter wants these people to see that this election is a precious thing. Beloved, God has set his gaze on you and has bestowed on you his covenant favor and has brought you into the story. There is hope as exiles for those who consider God's sovereignty and his initiative in salvation because, as Peter explains, these believers are positionally God's holy set-apart people. Verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Not only does God foreknow whom the elect will be, but the Spirit is the source of, of their positional sanctification before the Lord. See, we read that word sanctification, and for those of us who are Christians and we know the lingo, we think, oh, God is progressively sanctifying them. But that's not what is taking place here. Sanctification, for those of you who are not familiar, is a theological way of saying being made holy. And once we become a believer, we become more holy as the eternal day of God is drawing near. He progressively makes us more holy. But that's not the only kind of sanctification in the Bible. This is a positional sanctification. You who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds have now been made holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ, which is why the Bible addresses us as believers as saints, even though the believers in this room, if they're honest, don't always live very saintly lives. In fact, our lives often are riddled with sin and we're trying to put it to death and we're fighting those things and we think, am I a believer? So what does the Bible do? It reminds you of who you are before the living God. And Peter, he tells them, God the Father, he knows, he is the cause of your election. But the Spirit is the source of your positional sanctification. So Peter tells us, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit sanctifies some by bringing them to faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Both the cause, God the Father, and the source, the Spirit, give them hope as exiles, and that, Peter tells us, results in human obedience. Verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter teaches us that conversion is not merely an intellectual acceptance of the gospel, which is one of the most dangerous things for people who regularly come to hear the word of God preached. You can mentally assent to everything that is said in this room today. You liked every song. You could affirm every scripture reading. You like the way things are preached and you think that you know enough of the facts so that makes you a believer. But Peter helps us see that that is not what makes a believer. You can know all of the right things and sing all of the right songs and be a member of the right church and still go to hell. Brothers and sisters, our assurance is not in any of the right things that we do. It is not any of the holiness that we have presented before other people. Those things are the fruit of what God has done in our life. And so Peter wants these people to see that there is something that takes place as a result of their conversion. Conversion involves obedience and submission to the gospel. Something we regularly say here at this church. If God cannot command you to do what you do not want to do, then either he is not God or he is not your God if God cannot command you to forgive when you are harboring unforgiveness, then either he is not God or he is not your God. If God cannot command you to put sin to death in your life and radically sever it from your life, then either he is not God or he is not your God. If God cannot command you to share the gospel with other people when you are fearful because you are afraid of people, then either he is not God or he is not your God. If God cannot inconvenience your life by the giving up of your possessions and the opening of your homes and the service of other people, then either he is not God or he is not your God. The Bible tells us that it is possible for someone to mentally assent to all of the right things and never know the saving truths of the gospel but it is this first act of obedience, response to God's electing grace by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ that shows that we are his people. Have you ever repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? The Bible asks you that question time and again as you read it. And the good news of the gospel, forgiveness from sin and reconciliation with God and with one another is a call to repent from sin and believe in the good news of the gospel. That is, to turn away from sin in your life, to radically separate yourself from it, and to trust in the finished work of Christ, to trust that what Jesus did while he lived this life and died vicariously in your place and rose again from the dead was for your justification and your salvation. Believers, That is the good news of the gospel. And unbelievers, if you have never trusted in the finished work of Christ, we're here to tell you today that the Bible commands that you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that you hope in this Jesus whom the Bible regularly puts forward as the fulfillment of everything spoken of in the Old Testament and the very promise of everything written about in the New Testament. This Jesus came into the world to die in your place and he calls you to himself now. Repent, believe, trust in Christ. Often this is the very simplicity of the gospel that is so offensive to us that we would just turn away and trust and be made whole. Brothers and sisters, for anybody who's walked with Christ for any length of time, that is actually the beauty of the gospel because of the way that we often live our lives and we know how easy it is for us to train wreck them the simplicity of the gospel, repent. He will never cast you out. Believe, trust in his finished work, and you will be saved. If you have questions about that and what that means and how to do that, we'd love to talk to you. I'd love to speak with you after the service at the tunnel, but I'm here to tell you right now, if you don't come to speak with me today, here's the good news of the gospel. You can respond right now, right where you're sitting. And you can ask God to make Jesus' life your life, and his death your death, and his resurrection your resurrection. And the assurance of the Bible is that if you do that and ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will change you in your seat right now and forgive you. And it is impossible for you to find yourself in a position where you have sinned yourself out of the grace of God. Trust in Christ, hope in Christ. But what does the sprinkling of blood refer to? Now we get to Exodus 24. Turn there with me. Exodus 24, verse 3. In Exodus 24, we learn, verse 3, that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rulers, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. In Exodus 24, the covenant is inaugurated with sacrifices in which blood is shed and sprinkled on the altar. And the people make a pledge of obedience to God, this God of the covenant. And their promise to obey matches what Peter highlights here in the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. Moses then sprinkled the people with blood, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The blood of the covenant signifies their forgiveness and the cleansing that the people need to stand in right relation with God. And that helps us see that there are two dimensions to this covenant. The obedient response to the gospel and repentance and faith, and the finished work of Christ, the sprinkling of his blood. We must respond in repentance of faith, to the finished work of Christ. Similarly, God's work of foreknowing and the Spirit's work of sanctifying introduce believers into God's new covenant. Believers enter the covenant by obeying the gospel by repentance and faith through the sprinkled blood of Christ. And all of this is made more beautiful by seeing how our triune God is involved in all of this work. The Father foreknows, The Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. Who wrote it? Peter. Who was it written to? Elect exiles. Why were they that way? The triune work of God. Fourth, what did he want them to know? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The use of the word grace is substituted for the typical word greeting that we find in all types of ancient letters, because the message Peter proclaimed to them is one of grace. Grace. But he prayed not only for the dispensing of God's grace, but also the bestowal of peace, which helps us see something really important, that it is possible to know God's peace in the midst of a life of pain and suffering. That to have a life filled with pain and suffering does not necessarily take you out of a life where you are simultaneously experiencing God's peace, which is what all of us are prone to think, when life is hard and more difficult than we ever wanted it to be, when it is unbearable, we somehow convince ourselves to believe that we are not in right relation with God, believers in the room in particular, it is possible to know the saving grace of God and his peace in the midst of a life filled with sadness and suffering and pain and chronic illness and wrestling with hardship in this life, with anxiety and depression, and the hopelessness that comes. Praise be to God that those things do not disqualify us from right relation with God, that we can have very difficult lives and long for things to be different and still know the saving grace of God and his peace. Believers, are you trusting in the saving grace of God and the peace that he brings to you in Christ? Or are you looking for a peace from the creature that is only found in the creator. Are you looking for someone this side of eternity to make it right for you, what only God can make right for you? Peter wants us to know that we're not simply to just eke by with this either. We might think, okay, well, I have enough and I'm just kind of enduring in this life. Notice what he says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you which reminds us of what Jesus tells us. I came that they might have life and have life abundantly. We are not recipients of a meager blessing. In Christ, we are recipients of a great blessing. Grace is multiplied to you. Peace Is multiplied to you. Hope is extended to you. Life is given to you. Forgiveness is given to you. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another, admission into God's church, power to live a life where we are putting sin to death. Hope of a new heavens and a new earth. God's peace is the result of God's grace, and it signifies this holistic sense of well-being that God wants us to have not to just be children who are eating at the base of the table but the children who come to the table and feast richly of all of his blessings that are ours in Christ and they belong to us when we are in right relation with God brothers and sisters it is a rich feast that we participate in so why do we leave this place so dejected and discouraged didn't get it my way life is hard Some of you have suffered greatly. And I wish that God would answer all of the prayers that some of you have. But you can know the rich peace and grace of God. Things are difficult, and they are not the way that you want them to be. But that was true for people in the first century as well. The things were difficult, and they were not always the way that they were supposed to be. But they were able to know the rich grace of God, Brothers and sisters, the call of the gospel for the believers in this room is to come afresh and experience the rich grace and peace of God. And the call is the same to every unbeliever in this room, to come to Christ and experience his rich grace and the peace that he gives when we trust in him by faith. 20 years in prison had grown Andy's hope from the size of bottles of beer to a prison library and ultimately to an exodus-like escape. And though viewers of the movie may think it would have been more realistic for Andy to hide that small little hammer behind the poster in his cell instead of the Bible in which it was almost found, that symbolism affirms the spiritual power of hope. It is like the beauty of music, Andy said. They cannot take that from you. To him, hope was no longer an expectation for something to happen, but an acknowledgement of what has already happened and living in light of that reality. Eventually, Andy was able to clarify why hope was a good thing with all of his optimism and his redemption on his mind and finally earning his freedom to live a new life. But though poetically beautiful, Shawshank Redemption falls terribly short and misses the point. We don't carve our way out like Andy did. And hope is not simply life-changing magic that you sprinkle onto your life and then all things are better. Hope as exiles points us forward to a new future with a new family as the new Exodus people of God, living in light of the new covenant promises because of the new identity that is ours in Christ as we hope for the new heavens and the new earth, which is why C.S. Lewis said, And what kind of sermon would it be without a quote from C.S. Lewis? Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who hoped more for the next. Brothers and sisters, hope today afresh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours by faith in Christ. And God, we pray that you would help us now to hope and to believe and to help our unbelief to hope against hope as we lean on the finished work of Christ and the sure promises of what he has done for us. As we bank our lives on Jesus Christ and him crucified and the work of our triune God, the God who has caused us to be born again, the spirit who is the source of our salvation, the son who has forgiven us and cleansed us by his work on the cross. And God, we pray that today as we live in light of that hope, that we would live, leave this place as hopeful people, changed people, living in light of that hope, living in this world as we prepare for the next. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.